This interview was recorded on July 21st, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Marianne Bellotti. Based in Washington, D.C., Marianne is currently Principal Engineer and Engineering Manager at Rebellion Defense, where she spends most of her time thinking about how to build great software engineering teams, but amongst other things. You can follow her on Twitter at Belmar and check out her technical blog at medium.com slash at Belmar. And you can also check out some of her great talks on YouTube if you just search for her name. Marianne is the author of the LeanPub book, Hiring Engineers. In the book, she writes about what software engineers need to know when they're tasked with hiring other software engineers from recruitment to interviewing and making the final hiring decision. In this interview, we're going to talk about Marianne's background and career, professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a self-published book author. So thank you, Marianne, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, you have a particularly interesting one, I think. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, just where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in, in engineering and, and recruitment. Yeah, I, I like to tell people I spent like the first 10 years of my career desperately trying not to become a software engineer. Um, I, I got into computers because my father was a computer programmer. And uh, it's funny because I, I have compared my experience as like a, a young potential software engineer to some of my peers. Uh, and like they all came from environments where their parents actively encouraged them to learn about computers and learn programming. And that's how they know what they know. And I came from an environment where my father thought this was the absolute worst thing that could ever possibly happen to his daughter and was like actively putting up barricades. As, as, as we went. And so I basically learned how to hack by my father constantly trying to keep me away from the computer and stop me from programming and me having to bypass different systems to get back on the internet. Um, yeah, so I, that that's sort of how it all got started. And then when I started looking at careers, I'm from New York originally. I still have really strong ties back in New York City. And um, until probably maybe the last 10 years or so, um, when you were a software engineer and you were in the East Coast, New York area, you went into hedge funds, you went to finance, you went to big banks, you went into like Fortune 500 companies. You didn't really go and start your own company and like make millions of dollars. Um, you went into this very different pathway. And that to me was just the worst possible thing in the world. I was not at all interested in that life or that career. I was very interested in traveling and helping people and seeing the world and um, just generally how people self-organized. So I went into anthropology and international development. And then I kept finding these, these periods where the way I really got myself into the room was that I also knew how to program a computer and the organizations I was working for were dealing with a lot of technical poverty. And so they were like, oh, can you fix our thing? And we'll let you come to all of the other meetings too. And I, this, is, this is sort of how I broke in to like working, at, ultimately working at the UN and like in traveling the world and doing all of these interesting projects is that I happened to know how to program computers. And so I did that for a while. And then finally I got to the point where I, I thought, well, maybe I should actually just do this um, because the industry had, had really changed by that point. And so, I would say that I have had moments like this period right now. I'm in a private sector company, um, but a lot of my career has been in government, nonprofit, third sector type work. 
Yeah, thanks very much for that. I'm gonna. I'm really interested in talking to you a little bit about the United States Digital Service and your and your work for them. Sure. Uh, but yeah. but before we do that, it's interesting. In some of your talks uh, that I've watched while researching for this online, this interview online, uh, you have this interesting metaphor where you talk about how encountering legacy code systems, your your anthropological knowledge and training actually really helps you because encountering a legacy system is kind of like the, the software version of pottery shards and, yeah. and, and things like that. And it's, uh, it's really fascinating. The, the metaphors that people use and the angles that they come at this kind of thing from, I interviewed someone not too long ago who um, talked about legacy, being introduced to some legacy code as kind of like a crime scene. So you had yeah. to, like this idea of a code scene investigator, like a CSI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, but so I really wanted to actually dig into it. Like, how how does your understanding of anthropology help you deal with legacy code systems? And if you could maybe talk a little bit about what a legacy code system is. Sure. For, for so have no idea what that is. Legacy code or legacy systems are essentially um, software and computer systems that have not been actively maintained. Um, so. You could think of them as just old computer systems, but there are plenty of old computer systems. If people are actively maintaining them and actively uh, contributing to them, then they're, they're not considered legacy, but legacy is the stuff that's still running in production, but no one's looked at for a number of years and ha it hasn't been upgraded. It hasn't been maintained really well. And so now you're dealing with a, a volume of tech debt. And I actually kind of like form a distinction between the concepts of tech debt and uh, legacy code uh, in the sense that I think that legacy code tends to, because you're not maintaining it, tends to maintain some sense of consistency. Whereas tech debt is usually a bunch of like short term thinking decisions that are just piled up on top of one another. Um, but you'll definitely see those two things in the same systems. Um, so that, that's basically what I spent a huge portion of my career working on because, um, and it was literally like, I volunteer as tribute sort of moment. Like it, it's not a thing that most software engineers enjoy doing. Most software engineers actively avoid working on the old systems and the tech debt. And I genuinely found it really interesting because I, I thought about it from the perspective of like, what can we learn about how, how the organization was at the time this was built and how people saw themselves and like their role within the organization and how they saw the customer and the product and all of that. And that, I found that genuinely interesting. It still do. So it, it does like really scratch an itch for me from like an anthropological point of view. And like I was um, rather starkly referred to as the technical archeologist at USDS that I would, I would be the one who would be like, oh, I wanna go figure out why this old system is the way it is and like come back and tell you why all of this actually makes sense. Whereas everybody else is just like, let's just burn it to the ground and build it in something different. <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's so fascinating because one one thing you talk about is it's not just, it's not just the code itself, but there's all kinds of things around the organization that you can that you can see and there's history that you can understand. Like if you know, for example, like why is this code right. bug, buggy in this particular way? Well, it's because there was just a culture of indifference to that type of problem. Yeah. Conway's law is a real thing, and it's funny to me because like a lot of my writing as of late has focused on misunderstanding of Conway's law like people think that Conway's law is like some sort of divine mandate that like you you have built it this way because your org chart looked like this but Conway's law is really about incentives and like 
how people communicate with one another. And that, that it's just a understanding that people build things that reflect their current social situation in the place that they're working. And that is fascinating from an anthropological point of view and just incredibly frustrating from a software point of view. Yeah, it's it's really interesting you mentioned that. So, for example, like you you've been you've been I, I would say it sounds like very fortunate in that you know you're because you could do the, make the computers go. You actually got to level up and do more interesting things and get into more rooms. But I think a lot of people are often in cultures where if you know how to make the computers go, you get kind of sidelined and and stuck yeah. on, only doing the kind of things that the management views as kind of boring bricklaying. I think that's fair. I think that's also changing, though, because I think that it's be we're we're building a world and an economy where it is unsustainable for people to not know, kind of have a basic level of technical literacy. So um, I had uh, somebody reported up to me uh, a year or two ago who who just basically came into a one-on-one -on -one and said like, well my career development as a software engineer doesn't matter because I really want to be an environmentalist and I'm just biding my time until I finish my graduate degree in environmental studies and then I will quit the software job and go off and do those things. And I, I spent a lot of time like telling him like about my career and just saying like, you know what, that's fine. If you want to like quit your job when you graduate and go work for a nonprofit, I'm not going to tell you not to. I think that's great. But like right now you're employed as a software engineer. And so let's focus on making you the best software engineer we can because it will open doors for you that you are gonna have a hard time otherwise getting open because lots of people want to do what you want to do, right? So you're gonna have a hard time competing with all of them and this is an advantage that you can bring to the table. So I think that it'll probably, I, I hope that there will be more people like me that have other skill sets and passions and use technical literacy to open doors rather than people who are technologists and get the doors closed to them. Um, I do think that sometimes technologists don't do themselves many favors because they assume that, you know, there's this sort of general fallacy in American culture as a whole and maybe Western culture that like, we have this idea of the genius who's so brilliant that he can literally understand everything. And it's always a he can understand everything, which is like five minutes of perusing it casually. And it, it does every, it does a bunch of people a major disservice, um, including the people who actually are that kind of smart because it, it encourages them not to respect other people's domain expertise. And then people get territorial and then they close doors to uh, other perspectives because they, they are so worried about being made to look stupid or being disempowered in their own discipline that they, they, um, they don't embrace a multidisciplinary approach. So uh, I also spend a lot of time encouraging people to like seek out other perspectives. I've been spending a huge amount of time trying to bring more and more design into um, my engineering teams. I tend to work on more backend focused teams. So right now I'm doing core services. Um, before that I did a lot of like infrastructure SRE type engineering work. And, and the, the general conception of this work is like, well, why would I need to work with a designer? I don't have an interface. And I'm like, you do, it's just a command line tool. You know, it's like you have interfaces everywhere and you make design choices everywhere. And those design choices 
affect how a system scales and like what kind of problems we're going to have. And so like these are really, really interesting perspectives to sort of try to find out how we're going to integrate and bring to the table. Yeah, thanks very much for that. There's a there's a lot to unpack there if we if we wanted to go go in, go into every detail. But um, I just wanted to say it's funny you mentioned that the the problem with the notion of the genius. I've got kind of the opposite pre preoccupation myself, which is the the um, the in, the trust that people have in common sense. So that like you know, explain coronavirus to me. <laughs> you know, like like you're like we really do talk this way in our normal everyday lives that like everything can be understandable in like five minutes or something like that. Uh, but but I want to actually dig in a little bit to what you were just talking about at the end there about how um, design is actually important even for people who are working in software in the in the back end. And um, there's a there's a talk that you uh, have on YouTube that I can link to in the in the uh, transcription of this interview. But uh, it's really to me it's really fascinating and it's something that comes up on this podcast every once in a while because with software having fully devoured the world now um you know everything is built from software every company is a software company it's like you were saying and i couldn't agree more that like you kind of can't succeed nowadays really without having some kind of technical knowledge even if even if you're an executive who never who's never going to be touching a command line interface if you don't know what one is you're actually probably in in some trouble yeah. Um, and, uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, about the, the design of command line interfaces, like how everything in the world is built now comes from these things and, and even the design of code, although that's unlocking another door. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the, the point I was trying to make with the, the talk that you're referencing here is that, um, the user interface of something, even something that seems completely intuitive, like command line, um, will affect how something ultimately scales. If people don't know how to use it correctly, they will use it wrong. And that means that they're going to use it in a way that you didn't anticipate and you didn't test for, and you don't know how that's going to change uh, how it will affect other systems or how it will affect memory usage or a whole bunch of other things. And um, that to me, was a really incredibly rewarding talk to give because I gave it at DevOps Day DC and I had like a bunch of SREs come up to me and just be like, oh my God, I need to design it for my team. Thank you for giving me this talk. So like there was an actual change, there was actual conversation and change in, in opinion um, in that community, uh, even though it was, it's just kind of a local community around this idea uh, of like, well, what are we actually doing when we build infrastructure related tools. And if people do not know how to use them correctly, that's going to cause us a lot of pain and we don't want to be caused pain. So uh, maybe we should figure out how to solve that. In general, like when I run those kind of teams, um, I, I tend to tell them that like your customer is product engineering. So the engineering teams that are building the actual product, that is your customer. And like you have to approach them the same way they approach our actual pay us money customer. You have to take, go through the same process with them. And you have it easier because they are in the same company incentivized to talk to you, like maybe even sitting like two or three desks away from you. So you have a huge advantage over them in terms of access to the customer, but you have to take the exact same approach with them as they do with our actual paying money customer. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the uh, approaches there is to to um, have kind of structured interactions with people um, where you sort of find out what their pain points are and how they describe them and how they try and solve them or don't try and solve them. And you really need to avoid the, uh, you talk about how you really need to avoid the temptation to show them how. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how often people who are not used to uh, user research think of it as a tutorial. And it's like, no, that's not, not because it's, first of all, people don't generally absorb knowledge having it explained to them once. So um, you will have missed how they actually think about your technology and the assumptions they make about it, um, which is really valuable insight for you to have. And you also will not have successfully taught them how to use the thing. So <laughs> it's this, it's, but it's hard because people, especially when people genuinely want to help, your immediate instinct is to, when they, when you see them struggling with something, when you see them going, oh, I don't understand what this button does, or I don't understand what this command means. It's just this natural instinct to just go, oh, that means this and explain it for them. But you really have to kind of like see if they can figure it out first before you give them any hints and then only really give them hints when you need it to move on to the next level to see another uh, realm of features or functionality that you want to test with them. But actually Google does some really interesting video kind of role plays that they have put on YouTube that when I, I, I have occasionally trained software engineers to do user research, which is not ideal. I prefer to have user researchers do user research and for us to just respect their skill set. But it is useful, I think, sometimes for software engineers to understand generally what the process is. So uh, I've used Google's uh, videos around like how you conduct user research to sort of give them kind of a foundation from which to draw on of like what the expectation should be. So you mentioned uh, talking at conferences um, and the impact that that can have on people. Um, I guess I'm going to use it as a kind of like a not very sophisticated segue into talking a little bit about um, the pandemic, uh, which has been something that's been coming up on on every episode. Um, one one of the great pleasures of this episode is I get to interview people from all around the world and ask them about you know things things that are happening in their city where they live that people might only know from the headlines and things like that rather than politics and all that kind of stuff since the pandemic, that's kind of become the, the sort of talk, the thing we talk about. Um, so I was just wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about how um, the pandemic has affected your working life and uh, how things are going in DC right now. Things are weird in DC because DC wasn't really or hasn't been yet, knock on wood, really badly affected by the pandemic. We were a affected um like we did lock down but nothing compared to like new york or what's going on down in texas now or in florida now like nothing nothing like that so um people i, I was i was joking with a colleague the other day who was out in seattle and, and we were talking about how this kind of fear that you will forget that there's a pandemic going on and do something normal that actually pretty dangerous in these contexts, like go out without your mask or whatever. And he was like, I don't know why you, how you could, because like every time I go out in Seattle, everyone is masked. It's all, you, it's everywhere you see, you, you can't escape it. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, DC just has this trend on bandanas going on right now. Like you could totally walk out in, in a DC day and like walk a couple blocks and forget that there's a pandemic going on because like some people are masked and taking it seriously and some people are absolutely not taking it seriously so it, it that makes me sad because like i like dc as a city and i want us to do better than that i want us to like you know be a better example than that one um i think the way it's affected me professionally uh has been that a lot of things that i wanted to shift about my current 
work situation have been forced to shift. So for example, when I started work, I work for Rebellion Defense, which is a, a tiny little startup. It just hit its one year anniversary. So we were very happy about that. Um, and when I first started working there, they were like, oh, well, we don't want you to hire, we'll only hire people who are in the DC area. And I'm like, well, that's great, except there are not that many software engineers in the DC area. And, and like when you cut out, when you say you want like startup engineers that have kind of more of a Silicon Valley perspective versus a Booz Allen, Lockheed Martin sort of perspective, the pool gets much, much smaller than that. Um, I was like, well, what if we hired them within the same time zone, but just let them work remotely? And they were like, no, we want everybody in the office. And so <laughs> I, I was trying to like gently socialize how distributive teams work that yes, like five or six years ago, this, it was really, really hard to run a distributed team, but we've actually learned a lot since then about how to set them up. There's a lot better tooling than this. Like, you know, I've been, I ran distributed teams at all zero and like learned a lot about like what made them work and what made them didn't work, didn't work from my perspective. So I was sort of trying to like socialize these concepts and I wasn't getting very far. And then the pandemic hit and then it was wonderful because it was like, well, when are we going to get to come to the actual office? Like, when are we going to actually expect people to show up to the office? Um, probably not until 2021, the way things are going. So that kind of opened doors for me to introduce them to some people that don't live in DC, but are amazing that they subsequently fell in love with. And then like, I was able to sort of like move things over a little bit, little by little. I think I like having an office because I, I think that it is really, really important to get people who work together in person um, from time to time. Every single time I've run a distributed team, the level of productivity and cohesion before we all met in person versus after we all met in person has just been like night and day. There is something really magical about one-on-one -on -one personal contact with another human being. You do need it from time to time. Um, and when you're going to do that, having an actual physical office with your branding, your identity, like built into it. So you feel like you're coming home and you're like at ease versus being in a beige conference room that you have rented somewhere in the middle of nowhere. It's like, it's a much better experience having an office. So I'm not anti-office, but I do like the flexibility of being able to hire people who live in all different parts of the country to go do a job as a software engineer. Thanks for sharing all of that. Um, uh, that's really great. Uh, it it's, uh, reminds me, we've, we uh, basically because a bunch of subsidies opened up, we hired a bunch of co-op students for the summer from the local university computer science and software engineering departments. And um, so for some of them, it's the only job they've ever had. Yeah. And the only, the only in-person experience they've had is my colleague Peter showing up to, you know, leave a computer on the doorstep. <laughs> for them they 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 only know remote work um yeah. some, some of them and it's 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 been a really curious experience trying to develop a bit of a, a culture so you know lots of zoom calls and 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 things like that and trying to be friendly and make make time for a little bit of chit chat here and there yeah I, like interns and entry-level employees it's the hardest on because like they're the people that really benefit the most from being physically in and around conversations so that you don't have to be invited specifically to the conversation, but you can still absorb knowledge from it. Like as a young engineer, I remember like so much of my learning just came from sitting quietly in a co-working space and listening to other people talk about things. Right. And so like it, that, that it definitely hits those group of people the hardest. And I don't, 
I don't know that there's a really great solution to that just yet, but we'll probably get lots of blog posts six months from now. Yeah. It. <laughs> it's really interesting you say that actually I had a, a, a personal experience with a similar kind of thing or um, uh, instead of getting to listen I was I was considered to be like kind of a hot candidate for the, this job I got as an investment banker and so they threw me on the model the financial model yeah. uh, within like a few weeks which is something that usually you don't get to touch for like a year or two yeah, yeah. Um, and so what happened was as a result of that I just didn't I hadn't been sitting in on meetings and heard people talk about like what is, I, I was told one day, like run some sensitivities. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what are those? <laughs> and, and I didn't, it took me, it took me a while to understand the mistake that had been made, which was that if I'd just been able to be on fly on the wall and like take notes and make PowerPoint presentations as boring and as subservient as that seems having access to really smart people dealing with really important things for a, you know, some period of time is actually like the best learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this interview is not about my career. It's my <laughs> and so uh, you worked for the UN and, um, and then you ended up at the United States Digital Service. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what uh, the USDS does and what you did for them. Yeah. So um, the USDS was originally founded as kind of a technical SWAT team for the federal government. Uh, its origin story is very uh, tightly connected to the failure of, of uh, healthcare.gov. Um, and, uh, you know, Mikey Dickerson, who is the, the first administrator of USDS, was uh, involved in the Obama campaign. So was in kind of in their Rolodex. And when healthcare.gov blew up and, and nobody really knew what to do. And what's interesting about this story that is often left out is that the government was shut down at the time. And so whenever government shutdowns happen, pay attention to what's going around because it's like weird and interesting things, people collide that should have, wouldn't normally have met one another. And so the government couldn't, like didn't have access to the technical people they would normally have access to um, in order to resolve these issues. They were running on a skeleton crew. So instead they, they went through the Rolodex of like the old Obama campaign uh, techies and Mikey's name came up. So they pulled them in, him in with some other people and then he pulled some other people in. And uh, they liked the results that they got from that, that format of just rapid triage uh, SWAT team style incident command type work. And so they asked Mikey to come back full-time, moved to DC, and uh, run this organization that they had started. And that organization was the United States Digital Service. So I, I would say that, that, that USDS, like a young startup, seems to constantly be refining exactly what it is that they do and how they do it. There is still a lot of that, that SWAT team triage type stuff that goes on. There's also a fair amount of like long-term building of technical product that goes on. One of which is a project called login.gov um, that I think we rolled off of last year, but I'm not 100% sure um, because I, I was gone by then. Um, and so like you have all of these great little different ways and different approaches to helping that are kind of incubated under USDS. But the general idea of it is that government technology is uh, really, really old. 
and often really, really poorly made. And what always fascinated me about that problem is that it's not really poorly made because the people who make it are stupid, which is generally people's first assumption. Even if they don't say that aloud, they tend to look at the technology and go, oh, you don't know what you're doing. And that's the reason why this is broken. Um, but like a lot of times the reason why it's broken is because there is all this policy and regulation um, that's very well intended, but makes it really difficult to run an agile software development process, number one, or um, any have any kind of modern tooling of any kind, number two. So one of my very first engagements with the State Department and they, they didn't have any version control on any of their repositories at all. And if you think about how long we've had version control, that's kind of a mind blowing thing. But it was a, it was a situation where they had misinterpreted a regulation and decided that they couldn't put that sort of technology on their private network. And so because they couldn't put it on the private network, then no one else could really use it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. They had to ship binaries around. And so it was just bananas. And so being successful at USDS is often a mix of technical work with a lot of soft skills work. A lot of like what we tend to call bureaucracy hacking, which is really just like, sitting down with the people who are saying no and understanding what they're trying to accomplish because they're always trying to accomplish something. And it, it's not always a cynical something. A lot of them are genuinely there because they want to serve the American people. Like they're public servants, right? They want to serve the American people. They want to create good outcomes. And so once you understand that and you get around to like how they see the world and like how they define those positive outcomes, you can usually kind of negotiate that situation and figure out like, okay, what do I have to get you in order for you to feel comfortable that this thing we're going to do, you can improve it and it'll be okay. Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing all of that. Um, it's, it's really interesting. One thing I, I know you talk about is how, you know, if you come, if you come in as sort of like an outside sort of consultant onto some, legacy system. And we're talking about systems that might be, you know, 50 years old or something like that in some cases. And you might look at something and go, why was it built that way? What kind of moron built it that way? Why don't they, why don't they, why don't they have version control or why don't they do this and that? And one thing you learn after a while is that they're 100% guaranteed. There are a bunch of people jumping up and down yeah. within the organization who can't wait to do it right. And to, you know, have that new technology. And what, one of the things you can do for bureaucracy hacking is actually have the soft skills, but go around looking for people who can be these kind of, I, I hate the term, but like, you know, kind of be internal champions yeah. uh, for any change that you're trying to bring about. They're there, go find them. And when I worked power. at USDS, I used to tell the people all the time, your job is not to fix the technology. Your job is to find the people who are jumping up and down going, it's broken. I know how to fix it. Who are genuine, genuinely right. You know, it's like, there's sometimes they're a little out of date in their best practices or they haven't quite picked the right like implementation of the solution, but they're in the right general area of what the solution should be. Find those people and then bring them back to us where we can put them in front of like, in some cases, the deputy secretary of state or something ridiculous like that. It generally wasn't that high level, but like we, we had the kind of inroads and in different chains of a command that we could escalate that their concerns to a level where things would actually open up for them and they were actually empowered to do their jobs. And that was the best of both possible worlds because it meant that we got to declare success, a problem got solved, but it also meant that really high functioning people got unblocked 
And as a result, we're often like inspired and invigorated and re-engaged with the, what their actual job was. So you were making people more effective, you're making the whole system more effective as well as fixing a problem. Yeah, it's really interesting also that you mentioned that, that the people are there to do, to do public service. And it's, it's very curious, you know, I mean, often if you presumably if you come from private industry and come into some government bureaucracy, it can seem really slow and backwards and outdated and stuff like that. You know, I think, I think it might be I think I read somewhere that like the veterans affairs kind of calendar system is 30 years old or something like that. I mean, there's all <laughs> yeah. kinds of complicated things around enterprise sales and things like that that can be talked about in those realms as well. But the kinds of things that are being done are so important, right? Like not that companies don't do important things, but if your system is meant to help every single family in the military move their possessions around every year, you know, like that's a huge thing that you want to like, you don't want to just use the latest, adopt the latest trend because it, you feel held back. You've got to keep in mind the service that you're there to provide. And, and it's a real balancing act because like yeah. millions of people will be affected by the choices that you make. It, it kept me interested and engaged. I mean, it's still interested and engaged in these kind of dilemmas, truthfully, to be a hundred percent honest. Um, because it's exactly that, like the reality of it is that, that, um, sometimes software engineering, software engineering companies get away with things because their threat model was completely different than the government's threat model. Like, so it, the way we build things in the private sector have different consequences than they would if we built them the same way in the public sector. So you get into the, these interesting dilemmas of like, well, is like what is, what is actually important here? And like, are they wrong about those things? So like one of the things that, one of the conversations that was going on a lot when I left USDS about two years ago was AWS. And like, should we encourage the federal government to like move all of their stuff onto AWS? what kind of leverage does that give Amazon if let's say Congress decides to try to break them up in an antitrust action, right? Like if all the federal government is running on AWS and then you try to go after Amazon, like does that not create a massive conflict of interest? And so like it, you do have to play kind of four dimensional chess with it sometimes. So people who enjoy four dimensional chess always love working in government. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating you bring that up. My my go-to example for that is uh, email, and and uh, the the sort of way in I have to making the point is that if you could go to jail for sending an email to the wrong person, you'd design email very differently. For example, you wouldn't you wouldn't just put the name rather than the email address. An email doesn't go to a name. An email goes to an email address, yeah. and you want to know what email address it's going to, and you also want to know what email address you're sending from. Um, and typical clients, like we use Gmail all the time. Gmail's a wonderful thing in so many different ways, but it hides the information. And I just, every time, actually every time I use it, I'm like, I can't believe that I entered an email address and now it's hiding it from me. Yeah. Like I don't, I have to double check and make sure where it's going or it like hides the CC or whatever. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and a lot of the things that like when you encounter it, particularly in finance and I, I've never worked in it, but I, ima I imagine in defense and in government generally, you know, a lot of the reasons there's barriers up and there's kind of ugly looking interfaces is because the incentives are so different and the service that you're trying to provide is so different from, you know, something convenient and nice looking. Yeah. 
so like right now one of the the issues that we're wrestling with um being a private sector company selling products back to the defense industry is that um one of the things the the co-founder the ceo will say all the time is we're not a services company we're a product company what he means by that is the service company in the defense context means the the dod comes to us and says i want to rent your engineers at x amount of dollars per hour for them to build this thing that i've already determined what it is and the specs of it and then you'll build it and i'll, I'll own it sort of thing um, versus a product company, which is like a software as a service company where you design the product and you're, you own it and you basically rent access to it, to the, to the government. And the problem is that the military doesn't know how to buy software as a service. They absolutely have absolutely no idea how to really structure contracts or how to approach it. Um, and they know how to buy services. And so in starting that conversation and building those relationships and getting the ball rolling on our side, we sort of have to play the services game for a little while. But what we're building has to be built in such a way that it's not, we're not backing ourselves into a corner with this one particular customer's use case, right? And so that, that becomes a huge technical and architectural challenge. It's like, how do you think about your product and the specifications of your product when you only have one customer, but you want there to be other customers, but you don't know who those customers are and you can't talk to them sort of thing. Like, how do you, how do you like factor in the level of flexibility that you need in order to make something work for multiple customers? Um, so I spend a lot of time um, thinking about that and helping other engineers think through that uh, sort of challenge. I've actually got a couple of questions I was looking forward to asking you about um, recruitment in the defense industry. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I just maybe thinking about it from the perspective of, let's say you're, you're graduate, you just graduated from high school into this crazy time uh, and you'd like to work in defense as a, as a software engineer at some point in the future. Um, knowing what you know now, and if, if you say found yourself now being, you know, just graduated from high school and you wanted a career in defense, in software engineering, would you recommend that someone get a full four-year computer science degree? Or would you say, well, you, there's other options, like you can learn on your own or you can join a startup and, and get skills and experience that way and transition into defense later? Um, I think it depends on exactly what aspect of defense is appealing to you. Like if you are in any way interested in security, um, the government takes certifications very seriously. So the government has sort of accepted the fact that software is this weird thing where the best engineers aren't necessarily people with computer science degrees. But when it comes to security, they very much like that you've passed all the latest exams and you have all the latest qualifications. Um, and there's also like a huge academic conversation around information security and defense that's really interesting to be plugged in too. So like if, if that is your interest, and I think uh, having kind of a four year computer science education might be super beneficial in the sense that you will have the network to plug into that conversation, which will get you where you need to go. In general, I would say that it doesn't matter. Like I'm a self-taught engineer. So, and like one of the most brilliant engineers I've ever worked with who I'm working with at Rebellion Defense now doesn't even have a high school degree. 
so like the ultimate, the penultimate and <laughs> self-taught, I guess. Um, so like, obviously I, I don't think that computer science degrees are, are necessary to become good at software and to, to contribute in the tech community. However, like I also, understand that there are things that you learn from a computer science degree in terms of uh, fundamental assumptions and um, just the whole theory, right? We, I think we tend to de-emphasize the theory of computers in favor of the practice of computers because the practice of computers is what you will do day in and day out in your uh, professional career. And it's what will get you the job and what will get you the high salary is being really good at the practice. But the theory of computers, I think is also super interesting and super valuable, um, especially if you work with old computers like I do. Because like once you, you realize that, oh, the fundamental assumptions about what software is and how it's configured are completely different than they were like 50 years ago then like understanding the theory of computers is a really valuable thing. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily poo-poo a uh, traditional computer science degree. I, what I will tell people is that I don't screen on them. Like if I have candidates coming into my pipeline, I don't care if you have a CS degree at all. Um, so it's not a disqualifying factor for me, but in terms of like where's gonna, what's gonna get you where you wanna go in your career, I think, uh, with education, you should always pursue what is interesting to you. So if you go into a CS 101 course and you think, God, I love this. This is amazing. I want to know more about it. Then you should definitely do it for your computer science degree. If it doesn't click for you because you just want to write code and like you can do that with your current skills and like read some books and get better at it on your own. But you walk into, I don't, I don't know, like an art history class and just feel like alive, then you should do that instead. Because I definitely know people who have art history degrees and work as programmers. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I've got a, I've got a, a, a serious question to ask you about about theory and and your approach to it. But before I ask that, I'm like, this is actually kind of a serious question. But um, for anyone who's interested in getting into working for the government and maybe in particular for defense, they want to, That's how they want to do their service. And you've done this from the hiring side of things. So, uh, is it important to keep your nose clean? uh when you're young um so it's hard to work in defense of you if they cannot get you a security clearance and there are a couple of things that are just automatic deal breakers with security clearances and one of them is drugs including sadly marijuana so there are certain things that you should keep your nose clean about um I would say that like when they do background checks, they're really more interested in things that people can blackmail you over rather than like whether or not you're an angel. Like uh, uh, my background check was done by the FBI and the FBI has literally heard everything under the sun. Like you can't shock them <laughs> at all. So, so like they, they can be um, generous on certain points, but there are, there are things that like criminal records, drug use, alcohol abuse that, that are just automatic disqualifiers. I think probably the one that has the biggest pushback and most like likely to change is mental health, right? Like they, they are very strict on the mental health side. Um, if you are going into counseling for grief, then that's fine. 
but almost everything else will make them very, very nervous. And um, a lot of people have pointed out that that means that you are incentivizing people not to get help when they need help. And especially within the military and post-traumatic stress and things like that, that's a serious, it's a serious thing. So uh, yeah, you, if you wanna go into defense, you should probably like think about your life choices. Um, but also I would say that if you wanna go into defense, I wouldn't go into defense right away. And this is something that I also tell people on the civilian side that is deeply unsatisfying to them. And I wish that it wasn't true, but the, the thing about these sort of high impact roles is that there very there are a lot of people that want to work in uh, public service or want to make a difference in this world. So you have to actually like flesh out your value add to the organization. If you're coming fresh out of school, your value add compared to other people is practically non-existent. So you actually stunt your career, I think, by doing that in a lot of ways. Um, because they'll put you in an entry-level job where you will get paid practically nothing and it will be extremely difficult to advance. Um, you'll have great career stability, but it'll be extremely difficult to like get yourself in a room where you can make a difference and actually use your skills. So government is kind of like one of those places where it's better to go out and up and then back in than it is to like try to work your way up through the ladder. There's actually an expression for people who do this with political campaigns. It's moving out to move up. So every time there's a major election cycle, there'll be a certain small segment of government people that just leave their jobs to go work for a campaign. With the idea that if the horse they bet on wins, they will come back and they will now be three rounds up where they were and they will have gotten a promotion. So it's it was very interesting to me when I first moved to DC and I started getting exposed to all this and I realized, oh, this is how our government actually works. This is interesting. <laughs> it's how all the gears turn. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, that's the kind of information that, so, like, if you don't if you don't have someone to talk to about it, uh, you'll you'll never get it. Uh, well, the conventional narrative in any industry is that your career should be a straight line, and so you should start in one place and you should go like in an orderly direction, like advancing through the ranks, and that's a wonderful idea. But I think it actually is not the most interesting career you can have. It's not the most rewarding career that you can have and ultimately uh, unlikely to be the most profitable career that you can have. I just want to say hello to your cat. She's <laughs> <laughs> been very good. <laughs> um, just before we move on to talk about your book, Hiring Engineers, uh, you mentioned theory and um, one uh, way into your thoughts on that, I think is probably to talk a little bit about patterns. Uh -huh. And you have a specific concept of cannibal code. Yeah. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, I know you could talk about that for a long time, but, but if you could talk a little bit about, about, about what that concept is at a high level. Yeah. So um, cannibal code is, is a, a term that I came up with to describe um, repeated patterns of um, user interface and UX in programming languages. So we're going back to this idea of like a programming language doesn't have a user interface. Of course it does, right? Of course, just because it's not a pretty graphical interface doesn't mean it's not an interface. And like why um, something like COBOL, which was hugely like influential in its adoption rates, right? Like COBOL is still everywhere, right? It's in all of the banks. It's in all of the government organizations, like federal level all the way down to your, your smallest local level. But if you look at the way COBOL is structured as a language, 
and you look at other languages, like what has been inspired by COBOL, what has taken on those, those, uh, those interfaces, almost nothing. And yet you look at C and like C's many, many children. And you go further back than C and like how that has all broken down and like Lisp and how that has spawned different interpretations of it. And, and when you actually like look at these languages and the history of them, what you realize is that they're, completely different groups of people, right? The people who went, grew up and became pro, uh, COBOL programmers were a completely different type of engineer with a completely different set of career goals than the people who grew up and like went to code in C. Like by and large, most of the early C programmers were people who worked in universities. They were researchers and they were researching computer languages. And so a lot of the idea sharing and a lot of the, the languages that are inspired by C ultimately come from those same communities of I like computers and I want to research computers more and more and more versus COBOL engineers, which were mainly more pragmatic software engineers that were really interested in, in doing practical things in a business environment. And like those conversations, but those people were also unlikely to start their own programming language after COBOL. And so um, those sort of things are super interesting to me because I think when certain design patterns become really, really common, we tend to just assume, well, things are the way they are because that's the best way of doing things, but it's not at all. Um, and when you understand why people gravitate towards certain design patterns, then you understand what their expectations are as a user. And what was particularly interesting to me when you think about like the, the rise of Linux is that Linux in a lot of ways adopted some of the interfaces from Unix specifically to steal users away from Unix so that they could kill Unix. So I, I think most, most uh, of um, the sharing of interfaces and, and that cannibal code effect comes back to that, that the way I get people to use my thing is by offering them an interface that they've seen before. Yeah, that's, that, I find that. Uh, part of the theory of cannibal code so so fascinating that there's a kind of like there's an evolutionary advantage in some circumstances to cannibalizing yeah. uh, a you a, a, an interface that people are already familiar with um I, I i would love to talk to you about it but we've been going on for a little while now so i'll just put a link <laughs> i'll put a, a time stamped link to this uh great talk you have on youtube where you talk about why typically people want to write code in 80 columns yeah. Uh, and, and the history of where that comes from. If you don't know it, it's a fascinating story. And it goes back to like French weavers. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting. But it's like a really great example of how these, I mean, this is kind of what Richard Dawkins meant when he invented the concept of the meme, right? But like, right. there are these, these yeah. things that reproduce themselves uh, through different, you know, kind of technologies in this context. Well, uh, all, but it can also be ways of thinking as well. It's all about reference points. And a large part of that that whole talk, it's one of my favorite talks. That's a, a kill with we killed these things with fire that I gave in Sweden almost a year ago. Um, is all about reference points and how reference points influence technology adoption and how we see the future of technology versus our past. And so that, that was one of my most favorite talks to research, truthfully, and the most fun to give. Uh, and so, yeah, I, it's weird for me to just go, I definitely recommend that you go see that talk, but I <laughs> definitely recommend that you go look up that talk on YouTube because it's one of my favorites. So. It's, yeah, I, I was also really uh, enjoyed you 
hearing you talk about how uh, just now about um, how like different types of engineers uh, kind of build, but also work on different types of code. And I'm, I'm LeanPub's relative non-programmer. So I, I do do some programming and I have done some programming in the past. But for me, this was kind of like when I started working for LeanPub almost, you know, nine years ago now or something. Um, uh, it was a whole new world to me, this world of these programmers. And one thing I've discovered over the years is that like, there's certain types of feature requests that come, there's different types of feature requests that come from people who work on different programming languages. Uh, but but also there's like different attitudes towards customer support and <laughs> like like I can actually when someone has a particular kind of problem that they can express a particular kind of way I know what book they bought yeah like I know <laughs> what book they bought uh, <laughs> and it's it's just so interesting how how you know these these things have these self these sort of feedback mechanisms where a certain type of Technologies created by a certain type of people with a certain culture, and then people who have of of our of like mind. It's funny that you bring it up because I used to work at Borders Books, rest in peace, Borders Books, uh, ages and ages ago. And every day we'd have people come in and just go like, "I want this book. I saw it here last week. I don't know the title. I don't know the author, but the cover is blue." And how often we could answer that question and how amazed they were every single time that we knew exactly what book they were talking about. Because like people think that their purchasing choices and that their preferences are unique. Um, and actually they're influenced by a wide variety of different socio-cultural factors. And so we could almost always go like, oh, wait, was it XYZ by X this other person? And then they'd be, it was like a magic trick to them every single time. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. So that's a, that's a good opportunity to segue into, I'm speaking about books, uh, to speaking yeah. about your, <laughs> your actual book, um, Hiring Engineers. Uh, and I guess, I mean, let's start with the hard question. So uh, when you've been dealing with a lot of different people in a particular way for a really long time, you can become convinced like I am that like, I know what book that person bought and yeah. I can probably tell you a lot about them. But that has that brings with it the problem of being overconfident and having biases as well. And so um, for someone, when, when you're training engineer, software engineers to play a role in hiring other software engineers, uh, what do you say to them about, about um, uh, protecting themselves against biased judgments? So a lot of my perspective on um, building any kind of system is heavily influenced by safety science uh, and the work of Sidney Decker because um, I think when you're building out any kind of process, the, the trap that people get drawn into is wanting to design this perfect process that if it's followed 100% of the time, will eliminate bias in this case, but, or, or will reach a successful outcome every single time. And um, like the world is more variable than that. Like you can't specify any process that's going to work 100% of the time and control for all possible factors. So you really have to trust the person who's doing the job for you, in this case, the interviewer. And so a lot of what I do with interviewers in rolling out process to try to mitigate bias is really talk to them 
about what it makes them feel comfortable in an interview and like what sort of things that they need to feel supported and uh, encouraged and look forward and enjoy the interview process. Because I think that if interviewers enjoy the interview process, then that goes way further to mitigating bias than lecturing them on unconscious bias, right? I think there's a certain degree of awareness work that has to be done. Like you have to like socialize people to the idea that they have bias in the first place. Um, you have to sort of make them aware of the different manifestations of that bias. Um, but I, I think that if people feel comfortable and empowered as interviewers, that all that work that people do trying to mitigate virus uh, bias takes root more powerfully than if you simply try to uh, control them and eliminate the bias without empowering them. Uh, you mentioned process a couple of times, and this 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 concept actually has a pretty important role in your book, where you write about uh, how you you hate bureaucracy, uh, and uh, but but process is great. And so, what's the difference between bureaucracy and process? So bureaucracy comes from a place of control. Bureaucracy is about, um, I want to prevent bad outcomes. And you can't prevent bad outcomes because you can't possibly predict all of the possible outcomes that could happen. And like a, what might be a bad outcome in one set of circumstances might be a good outcome in another set of circumstances. I've seen that happen before as well. So you can't really fully ever create a top-down process that is going to actually prevent bad outcomes. What you will end up doing, if you think about your process from a perspective of control, is make it impossible for people to do the right thing. Because you'll put them in these situations where the, the circumstances have changed or they've had some kind of weird black swan event where the only way to solve the problem and get a good outcome is to do the thing that you've outlawed. And now they have to like weigh the, like, well, what are the odds that like, I'll do the thing that's outlawed and I'll actually get punished for it. Or maybe I'll do the thing that's outlawed and the good outcome will be the result and people will understand that and forgive me for doing the bad thing. And like, you never want to put people in that situation because it's, it's stressful for them regardless of which choice that they make. Um, whereas process should be about helping people figure out what the right thing to do. And this is a conversation that I've been having a lot with my manager lately, because my manager is very much of this, well, we should trust our engineers and have them figure out what technology they want to use and how they want to implement it and like how they want to do things, which in general, I don't disagree with. But um, we have some engineers who are working in technology that they never used before. So we are a Go shop that uses gRPC. We have people that we hire that had to learn Go and have never written gRPC services before. And so what you're doing is you're putting that person in this cycle of trial and error in order to figure out what the right way to implement something is in these particular technologies. And so if you have a layer of process that sort of guides them through that and eliminates a couple rounds of trial and error, they get a better result than if you have no process whatsoever and they just have to figure it out on their own. And so that's basically the difference is that process empowers people. It guides them towards making the right decision because you fundamentally assume that they want to make the right choices and that they don't, you don't need to motivate them or tell them to want good outcomes, that they want good outcomes on their own versus bureaucracy, which takes the exact opposite perspective, which assumes that 
the the operator will do anything in their power to create bad outcomes because they're just you know not they're not motivated or they're they're lazy or they're not properly inspired and the only way you fix that is by forbidding them from doing the wrong things speaking of process i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think about automated screening processes uh this is something that has actually been around for a little bit longer, at least with some big organizations than people think. And so organizations um, that get lots of applications will often uh, put them through an automated screening process where like, I'll just put it in quote, in scare quotes, an NAI, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, looks, looks at it and then decides who gets through to the first round of interviews or at least to the first call or something like that. What, what just generally are your thoughts about the state of affairs with that and whether it's a good idea or not? I think it's, it really, it is a scaling solution, right? So I do not recommend it generally um, because I think that best case scenario, you irritate your really senior desirable hires, right? Um, and you, you want to create a certain degree of serendipity. You want to be able to, people to be able to just apply on the website. Like a lot of, a lot of your most desirable candidates will come through recruiting or referral. Um, but you want to have the option that you will be able to just discover people because they simply apply for your job on, on your website. Um, but in situations where we're dealing with candidates that are straight out of school, I think it can be useful because it's hard, like the, the variance of people who are coming straight out of school is pretty high. Like there are people coming straight out of school who are like me programming since the age of 13 and therefore they have a degree now, but they're not coming straight out of school. They're not like a entry level employee whatsoever. Or, and you have people who are coming straight out of school who never programmed a computer before they sat in their first computer science class. So, so the variance is pretty high of new grads. And so it, that it can be useful to just sort of see generally where they are um, and relatively harmless because everything in that, that traditional four-year education sort of preps them to go through interviews that are very similar to the, the structure of what a, an AI screening will put them through. Um, yeah, so I, I think that it can be useful when you have such a high value of volume of candidates that it's a choice between either putting them through a screener or just they go into a pit that no one ever looks at ever. I think putting them through a screener is better than, <laughs> never look, than dropping them into a black hole for certain. But if you, if you're most companies, most organizations are not at that scale, right? They're not getting thousands and thousands of applications to everything they put on their, their website. They're getting like a handful of applications. So I, I generally recommend that the, those groups of organizations not bother with it because you won't get the level of signal you think you will and you may alienate people who would be really valuable. My next question is uh, something you address in the book, which is um, why is it uh, why is it hard to hire software engineers? I mean, it's really competitive. It's really, 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 really competitive. And it, it's competitive for our, we're we're to blame for the fact that it's competitive because we we have not as an industry been super good about cultivating talent internally. Um, everybody wants to hire the the already groomed, already grown and and developed talent. Nobody really wants to like take people who know nothing and like educate them and grow them and invest in them. I think somebody was telling me that the average tenure of a software engineer in any company is like two years maybe less. So like two years is not enough time 
to like really have invested in an engineer to like groom them to where you need them to be ultimately. So it, it's our own fault for it, but it is incredibly competitive um, and even more so as software continues to eat the world. So there are um, lots of options for engineers and lots of people hiring and not enough great software engineers in the world. That's a really great. That's a really great answer. I was expecting uh, something about you know the um, uh, the 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 risk that comes from hiring somebody because you know like they might just have a you might be stuck with them for a long time and they might be creating kind of things that are really core and important and then you can get stuck with bad work but at the heart of it. But that that it's actually like from the other perspective that it's like no 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 we need we need as many people as good people as we can and that's what makes that's what makes it hard. Um, uh, that's that's really fascinating. And um, uh, why do you write that if it's a maybe, it's a no when it comes to a hiring, making the final hiring decision when you've got a candidate? Well, I can't I can't take credit for that. This is this is kind of like an old uh, piece of advice from many many hiring systems. But I, the best practice in my mind is that every single person that we extend an offer to we should be really excited about their first day. We should be counting down the days to their first day, even if they're a junior candidate. Like I've definitely had junior engineers that I've hired where I'm like, I can't wait for this person to start. Like I have planned out the whole first three months of their career already. They have no idea what they've signed up for. Like, I think people should be excited. Like, I, I don't know anybody who wants to go into their first day of work and, and realize that their colleagues are like, yeah, whatever. So you're here now. Okay. Here's some stuff for you to do. Like everybody wants to come in and have colleagues that are excited about them and, and everybody deserves that. So I think it's very hard when you're interviewing people and then when you're ultimately making a hiring decision, telling people no, but if, if you think about it from that perspective, like what will that first day be like if you're not excited about them or even worse, if you're dreading them. Like, I've definitely had hiring committees where it was very clear to me that the engineers that would be working with the person we were talking about were actively dreading them coming to work, but they had technically like passed all their screens and like it was they were having a hard time like really articulating what was bothering them but there was obviously something that was bothering them and i'm like that's awful like who wants to come and work in a place like that don't do that to anyone ever please and how do you know actually that that reminds me um about doing it to somebody once when i was uh doing interviews not not for lean pump or something very different um we got somebody who it's sort of hard to put this in like he was kind of too nice and and after the interview, because it was a very high pressure job, and after the interview, my colleague that I was interviewing with said, I don't think we should do it to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, that in really high pressure environments, that's a tough one. I generally um, want to trust the candidates to know what they're getting into. I know some nice people that like they, they ended up having like just part parts of steel almost right like you put them in in uh, a dog fight and they didn't stop being a nice person but they there was a reservoir of strength that i could never have uh, predicted so i went I, we've had that come up a couple times because we do work in the defense industry and so we'll have people that'll come in and we're a little bit unsure of whether they can handle 
like the complications of it. So like we were talking about before, when you have a security clearance, you have access to classified information. You can't talk about classified information. And like very few people understand what that really feels like until you have something that is just sort of gnawing away on the back of your mind and you realize you can't come home and talk to your partner about your day at work. You can't like go out for a couple of beers with your friends and talk about it. Like it, it can be stressful in a really weird way. And one of the things that I, I try to explain to people is that when we talk about work stress, people tend to think about like anxiety and depression, but there's a different form of work stress which is addictive. It's when you find something exhilarating and you want to do more of it and you stop eating right, you stop sleeping a full eight hours, you start neglecting your personal relationships because you just want more and more and you're chasing this high. That is also work stress. So when it comes to like, can people, are people tough enough to cut it? I tend to just try to put that in the candidate's uh, court rather than have the hiring committee make that. But there are other things like we, we had a candidate come through my pipeline a couple months ago who was very obvious, was very experienced and knowledgeable technically, but couldn't explain it, right? And actively avoided explaining things. Like we give these very short kind of curt answers to things. And ultimately the decision that we made on th about that is that even though we were very confident in his technical ability, um, we also felt that like we're not a command and control style organization. We're an organization that makes decisions via consensus, which means you have to get people to buy in, which means you have to build relationships and earn trust. And if you can't explain things to them, you're not going to be able to do that. And so as a senior level person, we weren't going to be able to leverage his skill sets because he, he wasn't going to be able to like advocate for his ideas. And so that's a different story. Like those sort of things happen. Culture fit is a, a real thing and it's a hard thing to interview for because it can be so nuanced and it is a, a place where there are so many vulnerabilities in terms of bias, right? Like, are you rejecting a person because you think they're a poor culture fit because they made you uncomfortable because they were a woman or because they made you uncomfortable because they're a jerk, right? Like one of those things, hey, okay, let's let's kick them out. The other one is a very, very different story. So it's a really, it's a really hard, hard area, but I always, I, I tell people, this is where we really earn dividends by defining our core competencies well. And this is something that I go into in quite depth in the book of like, what are core competencies and how do they look? Um, when I'm writing technical competencies, I tend to try to bring in some of those cultural issues. Like it's not just about, do you write good code? Like what is our perspective and our environment and our culture around that? Are we a place that pair programs, right? Are we a place where junior people do code reviews or for senior people? Are we a, a place where if you use Emacs, get the hell out of here because it's Vim all the way? Like what is our culture around these things? Because if you start to incorporate some of that flavor into your core competencies, then it becomes easier to have that conversation and it becomes easier to make sure that when you're saying this person's not a great fit for our team, you're actually making that decision based on something that's not motivated by race, gender, age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, thanks for that great answer. You captured a lot of the nuances much better than my, my uh, crummy little anecdote uh, could, could ever possibly capture. Uh, and it's interesting, it just that the sort of, you know, I guess dialectic that you're engaged in where like, 
you're you're gazing at the interviewee, but they're gazing back at you, and you've got to understand that there's like you know, for example, you said I think near the beginning of this interview that one thing you say to people is like, when you're designing a process, think about what it would be like to be on the other end of it. Yeah. And you've also got to think you know, but you've also got to keep in mind that you've got your own you've got your own instincts that you should trust, but that you should distrust at the same. You should always be questioning at the same time. Well, being on the other side of it was actually what got me into building hiring pipelines in the first place. So when I joined USDS, USDS was just a few months um, over one years old, and they they had done mainly their hiring through referral. In fact, it was so bad that when I walked in and started at USDS, every single person asked me where what I had worked on at Google and where I had worked on it in Google. And I was like, I've ne why does everyone assume that we're to Google? But it was because like everybody was through referral and like there was just this, this seemed like this direct funnel from Google into USDS at that time. It wasn't quite as bad as that, but that is the way it felt to a lot of people. Um, and so when I went through the hiring process at USDS, they didn't do a technical interview with me. And then they hired me as a software engineer and that was not a pleasant experience. So I went in, to those interviews like really anxious because technical interviews are not fun and um was somewhat relieved when they were kind of high level conversations that we didn't really get into any details on anything um and then i started work and i'm working with people who were like early stage amazon 10 years at google 10 years at twitter and like i was like oh shit they made a mistake like you want to talk about imposter syndrome like that's the little voice that's in everybody's every software engineer's head going like you've tricked them and one day they'll find out like if you have an interview process where no one does a technical interview and you come into an environment like that like my imposter syndrome was completely out of control and what that went on for several months until mikey actually i was in a one-on-one -on -one with mikey and he actually i can't remember what i was saying and what triggered this but he actually stopped me and said like you didn't trick me i know who you are and i know what your skill levels are and he and then he started to talk to me about how like the value i had brought in such a short time and that like he was aware of where i was and what i knew and what i didn't know and what i wasn't good at and that he would make sure that i would always have support and so like that being acknowledged is what helped me get over and sort of settled in but the lesson that i learned from that is that interviews don't have to be tough for the sake of being tough but when a candidate goes through an interview process that is thorough and fair you're going to increase their confidence when you hire them if you put a candidate through an interview process that doesn't reflect what it's like to work there then when you hire them they're only going to feel like oh my god i have somehow managed to trick them into hiring me and they'll find out and i have to protect myself by hiding my inferiority as like effectively as possible and that's just unproductive. just moving on to the uh, last part of the interview where we talked about your experience as a writer uh, you write at the beginning of the book that you wrote it so you could stop writing it because you kept <laughs> sort of writing the same thing whenever you were brought into a role in a new organization uh but um so you decided to finally uh, create a book out of out of what you what you've done over the years um why did you decide to use leanpub as the platform yeah so this this is funny because like this is not actually my first book um i had been writing and publishing for a while and i've done always done a mix of both 
Uh, I have a book coming out in February from No Starch Press that's actually taking a lot of those concepts of legacy modernization and talking about how you run those teams. I might as well just plug it. It's called Kill It With Fire. Oh, please do. Um, and so like, I have always kind of done both at the same time. And like, for me, the choice to like self-publish versus going with a traditional publisher really depends on the nature of the project. With Kill It With Fire, I had all of these ideas that were very raw and I never actually sat down and tried to write them all down before. So one thing that is really interesting about the traditional publishing process is it is an incredibly intense and thorough feedback cycle, right? It's not just, we'll check your spelling and grammar, although they do do that and I do definitely appreciate that. But like every single aspect of what you're saying and how you're expressing it is basically critiqued. And so when you don't really have clear idea of what you want to say that can be hugely beneficial and i found it to be hugely beneficial would absolutely do it again loved it whereas with a book like hiring engineers um i had been writing these thoughts down in various formats every single time i built a hiring pipeline because i had to explain to people what core competencies are i had to document every aspect of the pipeline for uh, all the people that had to be involved in running it in a way that was accessible to them so I had, like, I knew what I wanted to say and I knew exactly how I wanted to say it. And like, I didn't want to argue about it and I didn't want it to be up for debate. So I, I had this, uh, that is generally when I start to gravitate towards self-publishing stuff is when I'm very decided in what the vision of the book is. And with this one, I was very decided in what the vision of the book is. And it's also only about 30,000 words, which most people will tell you is kind of small for a book, books tend to be closer to 70 to 80,000 words. So it was like a project that I felt like if I were to take this to a traditional publisher, the first thing they would ask me to do is bulk up the number, the word count for no practical reason, just to get it more into the book size, which I don't wanna do. That's not, that's not really of interest to me. Um, and that process, the traditional publishing process is also super long and I didn't want to really go through a long process with it at all. Like when Kill It With Fire comes out in February, it, it will be two years since the, the day I signed the contract for it. So like that, that's, now that's a little extended in the COVID-19 world. Um, the pandemic screwed things up a little bit on publishing timelines, but still it's a long process. So. Um, yeah, I mean, like I gravitated towards LeanPub because I was familiar with uh, the quality of LeanPub's product and I, I had bought books on LeanPub before and been very satisfied with them. And so I was like, oh, this seems really easy. So I'll just do this this way. And it was, and I was very happy. Thanks very much for that. And yeah, good, good luck with, uh, with your no starch book. Um, uh, and, and I really enjoyed hearing that answer because you nicely balanced in one response the differences between traditional publishing and self-publishing and why, you know, there are trade-offs, but like why it's really one choice for one type of book, it's one way of doing things for another type of book, it's another way of doing things. Um, and uh, the last question I always like to ask when the guest is, uh, is has published a book on LeanPub is, if there was one thing we could fix for you or one feature we could build for you, uh, what would you ask us to do? Oh, I really, really like the interface for writing Markdown on LeanPub, but I really wish that it would tell me when I spell the word wrong. <laughs> like, not necessarily full spell check, but like the little squiggly red line is so comforting for me. 
I found that I am the type of person that like writes completely wrong words in sentences or just like misspells them in hilarious ways. And so I found that I had to actually like copy a chapter out of LeanPub into Word to run spell check and then copy it back into LeanPub to like finish doing editing. So like actually just having like a, a very simple, oh, this looks like it might be wrong uh, on the spelling side would be really useful. Thanks very much for that very practical request. Um, we, we, uh, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I can't speak for the whole company, but I'm pretty sure that spell checking is something we're going to do someday. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty amazing that we don't get the request more often. Um, one of the reasons is that we have many different writing modes, right? Including one of which is just bring your own book. So you can just write your book however you want and bring the PDF, EPUB, or Mobi to LeanPub and just upload it. So you can be using spell checkers in whatever your tools are. And also we have, you know, you can write in Dropbox or you can write in using GitHub and Bitbucket, which means you're using your own whatever app you prefer to write in. But we also do have the in-browser text editor. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised that we don't get that request more because especially as spell checking has become something that happens automatically in your email client or, or whatever. Uh, yeah. Spell checkers are everywhere now. But thanks very much for that. And I'll report that to the team um, <laughs> that, you, that you vote for that. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much, Marianne, for taking the time out of your day to do this. I really appreciate it. And thanks for uh, using GleanPub to publish hiring engineers. Yeah, it was, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.